Well, it's good to be here this morning. We are in a series called Revealed, and the, the whole purpose of our summer series, we wanted to pick 10 Old Testament stories that did uh, three things. First, our, our desire is that we cultivate a love for the story. Uh, they cite that uh, growing Christians today have one common denominator. Uh, it's the top one. It's Bible reading. They cite that a growing Christian will have Bible reading as uh, a regular part of their activity in their week. And friends, that, that is definitely one of the purposes of this summer, is that we help recultivate for you a passion for the Scriptures. In a world today that has no reference point for morality or for direction, we as Christ followers do look to one. And we look to him, and he's left us this. And so we want to cultivate a love for the story. Second, we want to connect the stories. A lot of stories in Scripture that sometimes don't feel like they connect, but they do, ultimately they point right to Jesus. And we want to talk about that all summer. The third thing really is, I think, a lot of times where Christians leave off. We become very addicted to what I call a lot of spiritual information. But we want to charge you this summer, that you're called to apply it. I will not be held accountable. No teacher, no person on our staff will be held accountable for your application of truth. And so we wanted to charge you to apply what you're hearing and apply truth, but then also, as the Scripture talks about, is to share it, to share that story. This is why we do that. Now, this morning, I'm. Uh, it's always great to have Joe and Arliss uh, here in town and with us, and just as a side note, and I know we've got a group of people down at the village, which is our video service uh, live here, it is a privilege uh, to step into the, to really the, the footprints left by two that invested so long here. You don't have pastors that stay usually 25 years. That's not common in our culture. And to do that well, and then um, to have that old pastor like the new pastor is actually really rare. <laughs> so uh, we're friends. We love having them in there, and we thought it would be great to have Joe teach us this morning. So will you welcome Joe Orkovich this morning. It's good to be back, and uh, it's really good to be back and see friends and be able to spend some time with Troy and Tricia particularly Tricia. Um, it's always good to see her. And uh, Troy, looked, it's like looking in a mirror when I see him, except it's a really little mirror. But other than that, it's <laughs> Actually, Troy and I have been friends, introduced by Pete Dapp uh, a number of years ago, and we used to visit every time he'd come up to visit here. And then when they moved, he was on teaching team with me and did teaching here at the church. So now to see him in this position, and be able to support the ministry going forward has been a real thrill for Arliss and I. We love coming back, and we love seeing a lot of your faces. They've changed a little bit. A lot of them have got a little droopy and a little older. I'm not talking about you, Tom. But uh, all of us have changed a little bit, right? And in the change process, what we hope for is that we're not just changing on the outside, but we're changing on the inside, because the Scripture tells us the outer man's decaying, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. And that renewal has to do with what happens between our ears, but also what happens with our heart. And this morning, we're going to go on a heart journey, and we're going to do it through the life of Moses. 
And so I want to take you on a visitation as to who he is. And you may say, well, why do we need to talk about Moses? We need to talk about him because he is known as one of the greatest codifiers of law in the history of the world. Did you know his face is on the wall of the U.S. Capitol in the House of Representatives? The reason why it's there is because of his role in bringing the commandments to human history particularly commandments 6 through 10, which have to do with how we interact with each other. And he is there as a reminder to all of our people in the legislative body there that there is a basis for life in this world, and it's based in law. Now, you may not like the way laws are written. You may not like the way laws are interpreted. That comes and goes. But he's there because of the role he's played in history. Matter of fact, back in March... Benjamin Netanyahu, is the prime, who was, is the Prime Minister of Israel, spoke to a joint session of Congress. Did any of you see that? You didn't watch that? I promise you, you need to watch those things. Because whenever there's a joint session of Congress, it is a stage for people to be able to hear what the world thinks about whatever we're dealing with. I don't care whether they're liberal, conservative, from Israel, from Russia, wherever they may be from, we ought to be listening to it because we know then what is happening within the dialogue. But Netanyahu referenced Moses in his speech. And he says, Moses gave us a direction thousands of years ago that has guided Israel ever since. And the direction was what Moses gave the nation of Israel as they were ready to go into the promised land because God disciplined him and said, you're not going into the promised land because of the way you've done some things but I'll let you look at it. So he took him up on a mountaintop and looked into the promised land. And he was able to see it, but he wasn't able to be in it and possess it. But he said, what I want you to do as a nation, he said, I want you to understand that as you enter the promised land, do not dread them who are there or fear them. Go for it. Embrace it. Be strong in what you're about to take on. You know, that's a truism for Israel, but it's also a truism for us. We should not be, live in fear, nor should we live in dread in the world we live in. I will tell you that I, uh, I have a background in sociology, so I, I like seeing where the culture is at and what is influencing it. And as I watch the reactions of Christians about everything that comes down the pike, I realize most of us are living our lives based in fear. Most of us are living our lives as though we're out of control. little secret, you are out of control. I'm not talking about the culture. I'm talking about you and me. We're not in control. We're out of control. And who are we supposed to be in this culture? That's why this story is so germane today of Moses' life. It gives us a picture of how God works in this world to solidify who we are so we can make a difference in the lives of people around us. So let me take you on a journey through his life. Moses was born into a culture in Egypt where his people were slaves. So he was born a slave. He had no self-respect. He had no view of personhood. His identity of his family and the people around him had solely to do with how they were being treated within the culture, and they had a defeatist mentality. You know, for 400 years they were slaves in Egypt? 400 years! Generational patterns began to develop, and there was no hope that was left in the nation. This is what he was born into. And just at the time he was born, Pharaoh said, I want every 
firstborn son among the slaves to be killed on birth. Nice, huh? Moses, Pharaoh, uh, Moses' family's response to Pharaoh's edict was that they didn't want to lose their son. His mom had given birth, and she said, I cannot, I can't kill this kid. So the family put together a little reed boat, and they put it in the Nile River and some bulrushes on the side of the river. And they left him there, but his sister and mom used to kind of hover over to make sure he was okay, slip him a little food when nobody was around, keeping him alive, hoping for something to happen to change the situation that they faced. And one day while they were there hiding, looking at him in the bulrushes, keeping a handle on him, Pharaoh's daughter came down to the river to take a bath. And as she was bathing, the baby started to cry. Isn't that typical of a baby? Just when you don't want them to make a noise, they make a noise. You're like, how inconvenient can be? Babies are babies, right? I love sitting by them on an airplane. Not. <laughs> They're going to be kids. He starts to cry. Pharaoh's daughter says, what is that? What's... It's a little baby. Look at this little baby. And she looked at the little baby and went, that dude is cute. Look how cute he is. Look at that little smile. Whatever it was, she said, this dude's going to live, and I'm going to raise him as my son. Can you imagine? All of a sudden, he goes from being a slave with a death sentence on his head to a part of Pharaoh's household, the very person who wanted him dead. And so he's invited into this royalty, and he lives for the next 21 years as a prince in Egypt. Every particular thing that was a part of his world was touched by the grandeur of ancient Egypt. And it's, it was a society that had accomplished much. And so he was a part of all this. And he was an influencer in that society. And at age 21, one day he was out riding. And he, he had never lost track totally of who he was. He understood what his roots were, but he also knew what his position was within the nation of Egypt. And he was out doing what young princes do, whatever they are. And as he was out doing it, he noticed an Egyptian beating the Jewish slave. And he was beating him to death. Think of the brutality. He not only punched him, he was kicking him. He's probably picking up a stone ready to throw it at him and kill him. And Moses responded. He got down out of his chariot. He must have been a burly guy. And he beat the Egyptian to death. He killed him. And in that moment, unbeknownst to him, because he was going to reflect about later, he gave up his privilege. He gave up his perks. He gave up his opportunities. Because now he became a person who was wanted by the authorities of the very nation he was a prince in. He gave it all up with this sense of justice. And I think about myself, I think about you. How many times do we see a situation and cry injustice and we feel emotionally we have to deal with it? And then when we step back and we begin to look at it, we go, oh my goodness. I maybe shouldn't have said that. I maybe shouldn't have done that. 
It's the impetuous nature of us as human beings to draw our own judgments without a, a sense of consequence because we're emotionally individuals who want what we think is right even if we sacrifice to get it without recognizing it. And that's what happened to Moses. The next day, a situation develops. As he's out and about, he sees two Jewish guys fighting, two slaves fighting. And he's like, you got to be kidding me. What are these guys doing? Why are they beating each other this way? And he goes in and he breaks them up and he says, stop this. You're already oppressed. You're already hopeless. You already have no value in this world. Why do you want to hurt each other? Stop what you're doing. You know what the guy said? The guy's turned to him and said, you're going to kill one of us like you killed the Egyptian? I guess the best laid plans don't always work out the way you'd like them to work out, do they? He realized at that moment a couple things. One is, you can't resolve the tension that exists between people. You don't have that power in your life. Did you know you can't resolve it? If you think that's not true, then get married. <laughs> have a child. Tell me how that works for you with no tension. If you can't resolve the tension in your own relationship, how are you going to do it nationally? How are you going to do it internationally? We spend all of our lives beating up straw people straw men, rather than dealing with the reality of who we are and what we really control. This was Moses. Moses recognized in that moment he not only couldn't control what he couldn't control, he also realized he couldn't hang around anymore because he's a wanted man and was not only known by himself and a small group of other people, it was now known by the whole nation of Israel. If These two slaves are saying that he's in trouble. So he fled to Midian. And he took a job as a shepherd. Wound up marrying a gal down, gal down there. And for 40 years, he tended sheep. Doesn't that sound like an exciting job? Huh? 40 years taking care of sheep. Hey, how do you like the weather today? Bad. <laughs> hey, did you read in the newspaper this morning? Bad. Everything in his life was bad because that's all he heard all day. You talk about a boring life. Every day waking up, and what are you going to do with sheep? You're going to stand there and watch them go on the hillside. Hey, I wonder what they're going to do today. Oh, that's right, they're going to eat grass. They're going to eat some leaves off the trees. Oh, I know they like these trees. This is cool. We're in a spot where there's a lot of those trees. That's what he did all day. A boring life. And he probably played games in his mind because he was well-educated. You got to remember, this guy was a prince in Egypt. Every day he relived what he had lost. Every day he thought about the pain of what he had sacrificed because of his impetuous nature. He thought, what in the world? Here I am. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I, was a, I could have been a slave at least in Egypt and enjoyed a little bit of the perks of that society. I'm out here taking care of sheep. I have nothing. Then one day as he's walking around, he sees something he hadn't seen in a while. There's a little fire out over there. And of course, as a shepherd, he's thinking, I've got to protect my sheep. That's part of his job, right? So he moves toward the fire because he doesn't want it to get out of control. It looked localized, and he wanted to make sure it was going to be taken care of. And as he got closer to it, he saw that it was actually a shrub on fire. And, but it didn't seem to be being consumed. 
And so as he's looking at it, he hears a voice say, hey, Moses, is that you? And boy, that's real baffling. I mean, I'm sure he heard a lot of voices when he drank too much on the job, but this way he was sober at that moment. You can laugh, it happens. It's just a little joke. But the fact is, he heard the voice and he went, yeah, it's me. I'm Moses, yeah, it's me. He's talking out loud to himself in the desert now in his own mind. And the voice said, hey, dude, get your sandals off. This is holy ground. This isn't an illusion. This isn't a make-believe circumstance. There's something that's going on here that's beyond your pay grade. This is supernatural, buddy. Get your sandals off. And he obeys. And God said to him, I've got a job for you to do, Moses. I want to take my people out of slavery, and I want to give them their own land, and I've chosen you to lead them. For the next six days, Moses argued with God about why he couldn't do it. Did you ever argue with God? I'd venture to say without knowing that, most of us argue with God every day. Every time you have a negative thought about the world we live in, this world's going to hell in a handbasket, what in the heck is wrong with these people, and what's wrong with those people, and what's wrong with this group, and why did the Supreme Court do this, and why did Congress do this, and we need to... You're arguing with God. He said he directs the kings like he directs the rivers. And we lose sight of all what the scripture teaches because we want to be like Moses. We're responding emotionally to everything. I want to fix it all. I don't want that job of fixing anything. But I appreciate the fact that in the midst of the storm, God can come to me personally and say, I've got a job for you to do. You know what I'd like you to do, Joe? I'd like you to lead your family well. I'd like you to have an influence on your children and your grandchildren that makes a difference for them in this world because this world is messed up. A lot of slaves in this world. A lot of powers that be that don't know what they're doing, how to handle things, to handle people. I, I would like you just to, if you could love your wife and you could take care of your kids and set a tone of real inclusion and involvement, man, I'd be really appreciative of the fact that you were willing to follow me in what I've given you responsibility for. What do you think would happen if Christians actually heard that voice and began to live with that voice in their head? So Moses said, no, I can't do that. I can't do the job of leading. And he had all sorts of reasons, including the fact that he had a speech impediment. He stuttered. And there was no solution for it. And he said, how in the world can I leave when I can't even talk in front of a group of people? I can't do it. God says, we'll make an arrangement. Aaron, your older brother... He's going to be the spokesperson. You listen to me, translate it to Aaron, and he'll give it to the people, and that's how I'm going to do this job. But you're going to be the leader. For six days they argued, and finally God says, look, all right, Moses, here's the bottom line. With all the arguments you presented, I just want you to know one thing, that the job I've given you to do, you're going to do, and I want you to know I'm going to be with you as you traverse this journey and take on this responsibility. Moses said, okay, that's the deal. I can do it. I will do it. And he committed himself to the process. And Moses went back to Egypt, and he began to lead his people through a sequence of events where God brought 10 plagues on the nation of Israel that devastated their world. And eventually Pharaoh said, you can leave. 
Matter of fact, we want you to leave. Get out of here. We don't want you plaguing our nation anymore with the foolishness of how your God's responding in these situations. We don't want it. And so they left. And you know the story of how they left across the Red Sea and so forth. And when they got out in the desert on the other side and they began their trek in earnest to meet, reach the promised land, there was detour after detour after detour. And the reason there was is because God was trying to teach them their, their need to be dependent on him. And every time they learned the lesson, they'd renege on it and go off and do their own thing. Every single time. Just like you and I. God teaches us something about our inadequacy. He teaches us something about our failure. He teaches us something about our need for dependence on him and interdependence with each other. And we go off and do our own thing and we create all sorts of havoc. Their favorite thing to do was God would create a situation for them. It would be tough. They'd be angry. They'd be rebellious toward God. And of course, when somebody's rebellious toward God, we lash out at whoever represents God in our life. And fortunately for you guys, Troy represents God, right? So when you're mad at God, you can be mad at Troy. It's a natural consequence. And he loves that. <laughs> it's just a wonderful thing to be a minister and have people tell you you're an idiot. It's just, it's part of the game. It's part of the deal. But I want to tell you something. The issue is who's really with you and whether you're willing to listen to their voice. When the people of Israel got into a situation where there was a circumstance that cramped their style, caused them to not get what they wanted to get, they started to complain about God, and they complained about their leader. And you know what they were really stating? Is that they were victims of God and victims of their leader. And how do victims operate in this world? They have no hope. They have no confidence. They have no direction. And their life is really devastated internally. But instead of facing themselves, they put it all out there for somebody else to take responsibility for. You know, I hear this term thrown around in our society as though it's a trivial little term. And we always hook it on other people, right? Somebody that's not close to us. Oh, they got a victim mentality. You know what? You got a victim mentality. I got a victim mentality. We all have a victim mentality. It has nothing to do with the culture, the race, the gender. It has nothing to do with any of those factors we all attribute these things to. It has to do with the fact that back in the Garden of Eden, when we sinned, Adam said, God, it's your fault and it's a woman's fault that I'm messed up. I'm not responsible for this deal. You're responsible and she's responsible. We started off as a victim. And we've perpetuated it ever since. I don't expect anything in this world other than a bunch of victims around me. And I like to be a victim too. When I'm not happy in my marriage, it's not my fault. I'm perfect. It's Arliss's fault. Look at her. <laughs> she looks like a guilty person. When I'm not happy in my job, it's not my failure. It's the people around me. If they just support me and do things the way I want them done, we'd be great. If the Packers lose, I'm a victim of their failure. What's wrong with McCarthy? It's got to be the chaplain that screwed it up. <laughs> We're all a victim of somebody. And a victim has no hope. They have no direction. They have no purpose. Everything in their life is distorted and lost. And Moses is called to leave in the, lead in the midst of this. 
So each circumstance that presented himself, itself, he's working to bring people to see who they really are so he can lead them where they say they want to go. Because you see, you can only take people where they want to go. Do you know that about life? You can only take a person to where they want to go. For the last couple of years, I've been working as a mentor with business people, and I learned early on in this game that when somebody sits down and they tell you where you want to go, that's the sum total of where they're going to go. They're not going to go any further than what they purposed in their own mind. Your job is to present them options to try to accomplish what they said they wanted to accomplish. You know that's how God works with you and I? You say you want a relationship with God, you want to commit your life to him, you want him to live in you, you want to make a difference in this world, then he's going to take everything in your life and break it till you finally understand that you can't do it yourself. It's wonderful to read the Bible, but if you think that gets you brownie points, it gets you nothing. It's wonderful to talk about your faith with somebody near you, but if you think that gets you brownie points, it doesn't matter. What God is interested in is an authentic heart that is related to him. And circumstance after circumstance in the Old Testament, in the life of Moses, he's trying to break his people so that they understand their dependence on him because he told Moses, the only reason you're going to be effective is I'm going to be with you. It isn't your wisdom, your strength, your insight, your ability. It's the fact that I'm there. And when you're dependent on me, we might get something done. Otherwise, it ain't happening. The circumstance we're talking about today is a serpent. They had defeated the Canaanites, and they were all excited about that. God had answered a prayer that the nation had given them because they were begging them for victory over this. And once they got the victory, they continued on the process of trying to get to the promised land. And they did what they had always done. Once the victory was in hand, they'd seen what they wanted, they were satisfied, and they began to complain to God, boy, the food you provide for sucks. Hey, you're in the middle of a desert. You're eating. What the heck? There's three million of you. Your stomachs are full, you got a place to sleep, you got plenty of water to drink, and you're complaining? The lizards can hardly survive out here. No, God didn't answer them. He listened to their complaint. Then they started picking on Moses again. Natural course of events for a bunch of victims. And they beat him up for a while. And God got fed up with it. And the, the scripture tells us he got angry with his people. Did you know that when you turn into a victim and you're complaining and you're griping about what God has allowed you to experience in this world and has put people in your life to help guide your life and give you direction, when you start complaining about them, you know what God does eventually? He goes, okay, is this the way it's going to be? Let me give you a little piece of my mind regarding this. You know what he did with his nation? Sent poisonous snakes to bite them and they started to die. I was on the golf course, Cherokee Valley Golf Course, down in Mississippi about a week ago. And uh, I go golfing so that I can find golf balls. It's just a thrill of mine. I take a stroke off for each ball I find. So I can shoot like in the 40s some games. It's amazing. <laughs> That's a rule I made up. You can have your own rules in golf if you want. <laughs> so I do. And I was out on the course, and I'm driving right along the edge of a wet woodland area. And as I'm looking, I'm looking off in the brush because that's where they go, those balls. And where I live, you don't go off there, but I got a thing that reaches out about 35 feet, man, and I can grab balls everybody else will leave because they don't want to have to deal with what's out in those woods. 
And so I can just, man, my bag's so heavy by the time I'm done, if I'm not in the cart, I almost have a stroke trying to get back to the clubhouse. But I'm driving along and I'm looking out in the woods and I'm not paying attention to what's happened right next to me. And I stopped to look at what I thought was a ball. And I looked down at the golf cart and like right here, right below my left foot, sits a cottonmouth snake. I'm telling you what, it's a little freaky. I had to quick run to the clubhouse and clean up a few things. But as soon as that was done, actually, actually, I was pretty scared. But the snake, which is usually a very aggressive snake, instead of coming to me, slid off slowly into the brush. He didn't take off. He just kind of unwound himself and went into the brush, which I was grateful for. But my heart was beating so bad for about three holes, I had like 10s and 11s on it. I can't remember what I had. But I couldn't focus on the golf game because I'm looking for snakes every time I'm walking now. Because if you see one, you're going to see a 1,000 of them, right? Can you imagine the nation of Israel? The fear and the trepidation in that group. There's snakes everywhere. And they're not biting everybody, but when they bite you, you're dying. And everybody wasn't dying immediately. Like, boom, it was like, if there were 10 snakes in this room and you couldn't get out. You know, you'd hear somebody scream out and the snake bit them and you'd watch them go into convulsions and all the other factors that might be a part of the snake bite. And that terrifies you even more. And all of a sudden, somebody else screams. And they go down and they start, and you're terrified. You don't know what to do. To get away, you can't get out of the space. And this is what was going on in Israel. And so the people come to Moses, they say, would you please, please pray to God and change this? We're dying here. So Moses prayed and God said, okay, here's a resolution. Take a post, put a bronze snake on it, set it in the middle of camp and tell everybody, if you turn and look at the snake after you're bitten, you're going to live. Turn and look at the snake, you're going to live. You know what God was saying to them? If you want to know where life is found, you have to face yourself first. Because if you're bitten, you're going to die, right? You become aware of the fact that you're immortal. You come, become aware of the fact that the food doesn't matter. You become aware of the fact that if the water's not sweet, it doesn't matter. You become aware of the fact that you don't care if your chariot's pretty or not pretty. You don't care about whether you're living in a tent or living at home. If you're bitten and you're going to die, you're focused on the fact that you're mortal and you're going to die. And the fact is, if they looked at the very thing that was creating the tension for them, they could live. They had to look at their sin. They had to look at their failure. They had to look at what was wrong with them. And they couldn't run from themselves. And that's where they found life. Now we go to the New Testament, John chapter 3. That was Numbers 21, by the way, John chapter 3. Jesus being approached by Nicodemus, who's a religious leader. And he came to Jesus when it was nighttime because he didn't want to be seen by his peers. You know, he's a little, this guy had a reputation, Jesus, and he didn't want his sullied by Jesus. He said, you know what, I've been watching what you do and I know you're sent from God. So what does a ha person have to do to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, you got to be born again. He said, wait a second, I can't. Look at me. 30 years old or whatever, I can't go back in my mom's womb. It's not going to work. Jesus said, I'm not talking about 
just natural birth. You've got to be born of water and the Spirit. Birthing of water has to do with natural birth. Birthing of Spirit has to do with our spirit in us changing because, you see, sin has destroyed and killed our spirit. And unless there's an outside force to come and awaken it, it's not going to happen. You're not going to educate yourself into a whole spirit. You're not going to emote yourself into a whole spirit. You're not going to do the things that you can chant all day. You can do whatever you want to do to try to prop it up yourself. But you see, your spirit cannot be awakened from a human perspective because what it's lost is its ability to connect with God. And the only way that's going to change is for God to connect with you. And that's exactly what God was trying to point out through these words of Jesus. Because he said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man has to be lifted up. So everybody who looks at him will receive eternal life. Imagine that. Now think of the difference. Jesus is going to hang on that stick at some point. And that's what he's talking about with Nicodemus. And when he hangs on the stick this time, he says, I want you to look and live. Look at the Son of Man and live. When you look at Jesus, you don't see your brokenness. You don't see your failure. You don't see your sin, which we saw in the serpent in the Old Testament, right? When you look at Jesus, your sin is covered by his blood. It's taken care of. Your acceptance is complete. And you're looking into the face of the Son of God who says, I'm here for you. I can't imagine. The scripture tells us that some people would even die for a righteous person. But Jesus came into this world to die for the most despicable of us. So that if we look to him, we could live. We live in a world that's looking for answers. It's not going to be found in what we think. It's not going to be found in what we project. It's not going to be found in the amount of emotion we can create around an issue. You know what it's going to be confronted by that will make a difference? By the kind of character that Jesus Christ exhibited when he saw our brokenness, when he saw our sin, and when he saw our failure, he didn't condemn us, but he opened his arms to receive us and said, I love you. I can handle your brokenness. I can handle your sin. He's the one that said, come to me. All of you who are labor, laboring in this world and are weary and are tired and are just sick of trying to do it on your own, come to me and you'll find rest for your souls. He's not interested in you and I being victims of sin anymore. He's not interested in you and I being victims of each other anymore. He's interested in us understanding what his love has to say to us first and then to the world as he lives through us. And so this morning, I want you to think about two things. One is, I'd like you to think about where you're at if you've made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Are you a person who is living as though they're a victim in this world? And you're spending all your energy, all your effort, all your mindset trying to condemn the world for its brokenness? It's foolish. Look at your own brokenness. If you can't live a perfect life, you don't have any right to throw a stone at somebody else. That's just the truth. Because isn't what Jesus said to those people who were condemning the woman caught in adultery? 
Those of you without sin, throw the first stone. Go ahead, have at it. Everybody left. So how do we as Christians think our role is to condemn a broken world for their brokenness? It's ludicrous. We need to look to the cross of Jesus Christ as believers and understand if we've committed our life to the Lord Jesus that we have to hang there just like he did and said if you're tired if you're weary if you feel defeated if you think you're overwhelmed if you think there's no hope come to him I can't tell you how to live your life I can live my life and I'll do the best I can but I'm not here to condemn you I'm here to embrace you as best I can and I want his love to be seen in me to touch your life Some of you need to get that straight with God this morning. You need to say to him when we close in prayer in just a minute, I've been living as though I'm a victim, and so I put all my energy toward condemning others so then I don't have to look at myself. God, I want to change that today. I want to be clean before you, and I want my brokenness to become the issue that you deal with, not somebody else's. You need to deal with me first. Some of you this morning, you've been around the religious establishment for most of your life. You grew up as a good Methodist or Presbyterian or Catholic or Baptist, whatever it may be, and you've depended on your pedigree to sustain you. That's not what Jesus calls us to. In order to look and live in the Old Testament, you had to turn and face your sin. In the New Testament, God says you turn and you face me face to face. In other words, you're entering into a relationship with me. And as he hangs on the cross, he wants those of you who have never, ever seen his face to understand that that death, life, and resurrection were about redemption, not condemnation. And when you come to him and you see his death on your behalf, and you understand that his resurrection is about to take place, you realize that you don't have the power within yourself to make a difference. Only he does. And like he said to Moses, I will be with you. Jesus said, I'll be with you for the rest of your existence. I'll walk with you. But in order for the deal to be struck, you have to return to him by looking him in the face and saying, I get it. I'm broken. The world I live in is broken. And I no longer want my sin on me. I want to take it and release it to you on the cross so I never have to look at it again. Doesn't mean it doesn't haunt me once in a while. Doesn't mean my failure is gone. Listen, I've had to deal with issues in my life many, many times. And they never leave you. They're always in the computer. They can always come up given the right circumstances. But Jesus wants us to understand about what's in the computer and what's been a part of our history. It's not on you anymore. It's on me. And when you're reminded of that, you go, thank you, God. I'm glad that forgiveness and acceptance is there. If you've never come to that point in your life and you've depended on your pedigree, you've depended on your orientation, you've depended on what was important to you as a human being, you've depended on the way you were raised, listen, now's the time to cement that with God. Understand, he put that stick in the ground that Jesus hung on so you and I could see him for who he really is. And understand that he loves you. He's forgiven you. And he wants to be with you wherever you go. You can do that in just a minute by just recognizing it and saying to him as we close in prayer, thank you. Thank you. It's a matter of acknowledgement about who he is and what he's offering you. Let's bow our heads in prayer together.
Lord, we're here to give ourselves to you this morning in some form or fashion. Some of us you've spoken to and you've said, hey, deal with your attitude. Deal with your view of the world because you've been living it as though the world can't help itself. They're a victim of this, victim of that, and so are you. And you're not a victim, you're making choices. And the only time you find freedom is when you turn to me. God, some of us need to deal with this. I'd say all of us at some level. Convict us. And God, those of us who are here this morning, who depended on all the externals of this world to bring us salvation, but have never looked at you on the cross and said, I no longer want my sin and my failure on myself, but I want to release it to the cross and allow your resurrected life to be lived through us. Lord, this morning we say thank you. Thank you for your acceptance, for your sacrifice, and your forgiveness. We look forward to how we can live in this world under your authority and power. Thank you, Lord, for not only giving us something to say to you, but of hearing our words and our thoughts. In Jesus' name, amen. In a moment, we're going to go to communion, and I want you to think about this in two ways. Communion is about our personal faith in Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he made for us. It's not a moment of negativity or oppression. It's a moment of celebrating that I don't have to face me. Somebody's faced me for me. It's a moment of being able to say, Jesus paid the price. He accepted me for who I am. When I take this bread and this cup, I don't have to be morose. It's a celebration. I'm free. And the scripture tells us when the spirit sets you free, you are really free. You may not live like you're free, but you are really free. It's your choice. So this morning as you go, if you've confessed an attitude that needs to be taken care of, if you surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus this morning and said thank you, go there saying, God, thank you that you were willing to give this sacrifice so that I could stand here and say, I'm accepted, I'm loved, I'm whole, and I can live that way in the world I'm a part of, and I can influence the people around me for Jesus' sake. Let's go to the table together.